0: Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today, we're going to a state we haven't gone to before. We're going to Arizona. We're visiting with the guys from Whiskey Del Bach in Tucson. And I have with me Mark Vierthaler.
1: Bierthaler. Bierthaler,
0: so close. Yes. (laughs) And Stephen Paul, founder and owner. Stephen, Mark, welcome. How are you? Good to be here. Doing well, doing well. Glad to have you guys on. So uh, we'll jump right in here. So as I said, this is the first time we've gone to a distillery in Arizona. So I know you've talked about the history of how the brand got started before on a couple of other podcasts and we'll reference them throughout. So I wanted to jump right a little past that to um, what the Arizona distilling scene looks like, what it looked like when you started and what it looks like today.
2: Um, well, I think there are maybe 10 uh, active distilleries in, in the state now. We were the second one uh, to get licensed in, I think, 2011. Um, <clears throat> um, the first one being uh, one called Desert Diamond up in Kingman. Um, and yeah, so. um oh, I'm so sorry. Okay. Um, <laughs> Hold on. I apologize. I have hearing aids that are connected to my phone. <clears throat> and I haven't quite figured out how to um, bypass that yet. So I'm so sorry. No worries. No worries. <laughs> oh, my God. It's welcome to geezerhood. Um, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, this, the distilling scene in Arizona is... Um, uh, kind of, uh, you know, not well-developed. Um, I think there's, uh, some, a few that are making good product, um, some that aren't yet, but, um, but yeah, so, so, uh, we, we had a kind of fledgling guild. We have a fledgling guild, which kind of fizzled during COVID and we haven't really done anything since, uh, kind of the COVID situation improved. So, um, so yeah, we're, we're, um, You know, the funny thing is early on when I was doing festivals, uh, right after we started, you know, putting product in bottles, um, Arizona had a bad reputation as far as wine goes. Mm -hmm. Like we've been making wine here for a while and people, um, would taste our whiskey and go, and then they'd pause and go, oh, this is actually good.
1: (laughs) Um, (laughs) and so
2: there was a little bit of a hurdle there, um. Anyway, yeah, so that's kind of the sketchy, sketchy, the rough sketch of what's going on here.
0: So I should assume then you're not doing any local wine finishes in the near future.
2: <laughs> no, but actually the the wine scene has gotten a lot better over the last kind of ten years too. So so that's could be a possibility down the road.
0: Fair enough, fair enough. So uh, with those you know about ten distilleries, um, just throwing a number out there. I mean, how many are making whiskey, really? Or or are they mainly like gin, vodka, other spirits?
2: I'm saying about five or six um, are doing whiskey. Um, I think there's a a couple of single malts being made. Uh, I think Santan Distillery up in Phoenix is making a single malt, and I think Elgin uh, Distillery down in a little southeast of us is making a single malt. Um, I think... There's one called Grand Canyon that is also making a single malt. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah.
0: Not surprised to know or to find out, rather, there's a Grand Canyon distillery. (laughs) I I haven't been to the South Rim. I've only been to the North Rim. North Uh Rim is not favorable for distilling, but the South Rim (laughs) is probably a little bit better. So, uh, as I mentioned, I've listened to you guys on a couple of different podcasts, just trying to get information about uh, to make this episode more interesting for you guys, more interesting for listeners too. Uh, And uh, one of the things I wanted to start with was something that came from the, uh, when uh, Steven, when you were on the Single Malt Matters podcast. And this was uh, just part of the origin story that mesquite wood, which you'd worked on uh, through furniture business, through uh, early iterations of the distillery, mesquite wood creates a lot of waste. Um, And I had to look up what a mesquite tree looks like, as you can imagine. Not a lot of them up here in New York City. <laughs> so um, I wanted to ask you particularly about um, trying to use mesquite wood, not only for what you have been using it for and for smoking, but also um, when you tried to barrel with it, or when you tried to create a barrel out of it.
2: Well, okay, so, yeah, so my wife originally, as you probably heard, had this idea to dry malt over a mesquite fire Mm -hmm. instead of a peat fire like they do in Scotland. And um, I just when she came up with this idea, I was totally captivated. And then immediately I had two other ideas, Uh, one to make a barrel out of mesquite, um, you know, char the inside and, you know, age age single malt whiskey in it um and um so yeah i did i i made two little barrels and uh it ended up tasting horrible um (laughs) i thought it was going to taste fantastic um and it was just very tannic very acrid the the mesquite was extremely aggressive in fact the color was amazing it was like this kind of red color that was kind of pretty but yeah bad whiskey bad idea (laughs) and then also um Another little thing that my wife will never let me live down. I don't know if I had mentioned this in that one you were listening to, but um, I also, um, in making one of the, it was a little two, two gallon barrels. And um, I, in 25 or 30 years of of woodworking, I had never lost a digit. um, And just milling out staves for the, one of the little barrels, I had an accident and lost the end of my one of my fingers on my left hand and so um just a you know 3 quarters of an inch but uh <laughs> so that that's uh is will go down an in infamy in terms of this whole whiskey project uh, from my wife's point of view um mm-hmm. it is um a, kind of a badge of honor though to have joined what is in the woodworkers circles is called the nub club so um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> i i loved that sir it was it was so perfect it's like never trust a shop a uh, teacher with all 10 fingers intact kind of thing <laughs> right. Uh, right. yeah <laughs> uh, so I, don't know, I had to start on that one because I'm, I'm obsessed with barrels at the moment and figuring that out um had you you said you were milling them yourself have you had you created barrels for furniture use before no. that?
2: no never and that's like trying to you know, uh, instead of bending a, a, you know, very small, you know, staves for a very small barrel, I was trying to mill that curve into the barrels, to the staves. And so that was what was difficult. Yeah. Again, I mean, this barrel, a two gallon barrel is probably, you know, 14 inches long and, you know, 10 inches in diameter or something. So pretty
0: little. Right. Right. All right. So when, uh, when you started, or actually I'll rephrase that. I'll go back to to the end and then go back to the end. Um towards the end of one of the interviews, uh don't remember which one, you were asked very point blankly, you know, would you ever make a bourbon? And immediately, nope. Nope. <laughs> so I get that I get that now, but I don't think I I've heard uh why the, maybe the story of why you went with a single malt in particular when you decided to start uh, the distillery?
2: Um, So, so I've never, so we've, my wife and I have always, have always consumed single malts. Um, And I actually really don't gravitate toward bourbons. Um, It's not my favorite spirit. Um, So, so yeah, the vision was a single malt whiskey that was, you know, truly from the desert Southwest like a very regional American single malt whiskey. Um, and that was kind of the, you know, the motivation. And so that's what we, what we pursued. Um, and so, so, yeah, having said that, we are about to branch into an, a, another um, type of whiskey that we won't make. We'll, we, we're gonna put a s- desert spin on it <clears throat> um, and we'll be um, going public with that pretty soon. But uh, as far as what we make, it'll always be American single malt whiskey. Yeah.
0: All right. It's a little teaser for uh, for your listeners coming up. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So when uh, so <clears throat> Mark, when you came to to uh, Whiskey Del Bach, your uh, previous distillery, uh, you come from was the Tenth Ward. Yes, correct. So um, as far as I saw, they don't create any single malts.
1: Right. (laughs) So what was
0: your learning curve like when you came on?
1: Um, You know, it was it was kind of a bit of serendipity because, you know, one of the things that we were kind of known for and really focused on at 10th Ward was doing a little bit of everything. You know, it was kind of this let's let's take old school production styles and let's put our own spin on it. And one of the last things that I laid down on Oak before I left 10th Ward was a single malt whiskey. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And so um, but at at 10th Ward and at Boot Hill, which was the distillery I was at before 10th Ward. um, Yeah, we had never really done american single malt whiskey and it was something that i was always you know very intrigued by and um was familiar with what whiskey del Boc was doing you know had i had heard about them out on the east coast and was able to even sneak a couple of bottles a few times to <laughs> to familiarize myself with it and really just was one loving the idea of specializing Um, You know, having worked at two distilleries where we did a little bit of everything, gin, vodka, liqueurs, bourbon, rye, the -hmm. idea of doing one thing and doing one thing very well was very appealing. And also kind of like what Stephen has touched on, that idea of a sense of place. Uh, When I got into distilling, the question that people would always ask is, you know, well, what are you trying to make? Are you trying to make Maker's Mark? Are, Are you trying to make? I was like, no, we're trying to make whatever it is we're going to make. And Whiskey Del Bach had really leaned into that and had created this American single malt that leaned into the terroir of the Southwest desert. And so it just, you know, it, it was a learning curve. Um, I had the advantage that um, the team that I came into, uh, Dustin, Raymond, and Abby had been doing it for a while. Um, you know, they knew the ins and outs of it and I was able to really lean on them you know, at the very beginning to be like, hey, you guys are the experts in single malt. I am not. And so there was just this amazing chance to learn and to see how things were done and, you know, to to take that time to experiment too and to be able to lean on Stephen's knowledge, you know, with 10 years of experience within single malt and, you know, the, the production staff's knowledge. It just, while there was definitely... A learning curve, it made it infinitely easier on me. <laughs>
0: and like I said, you could sneak a few bottles, so you got to, you know, study before you, exactly. before you got there.
2: <laughs> exactly. I, I will yeah. add though that uh, Mark has come in with you know vastly more experience than I ever had, and more experience than our the, the three, you know, team members had, uh, and really more than any other distillery we've had here. Uh, we've had two other head distillers. Uh, After I kind of stepped aside, or very early in the game. Uh, So anyway, Mark's been a tremendous uh, asset to us um, in terms of his knowledge and um, kind of ability. I mean, um, willingness to explore, uh, problem solve, all kinds of things. It's been he's been really great.
0: Fantastic.
1: Making me blush. (laughs) It's it's
0: audio only, but he is blushing, ladies and gentlemen. so to jump off of that point of, of experience, I mean, now in 2022, we've got 140 plus distilleries around the, or the, around the U S making single malt, uh, what we think of as American single malt. And we'll get to the, uh, the proposed legislation or proposed standards of identity later on, but you've got 140 out there. Uh, Stephen, when you started, um, and for that matter, Mark, when you were just starting and distilling as well, there were not that many out there. I mean, as of twenty ten, would have been basically like McCarthy's, uh, Westland's, maybe. Um, I think Stranahan's Westward, maybe. Stran- Stranahan's maybe. So oh, St. George, St. George. George, yeah, St. Yeah. Right, George is one of the other ones. Um, you know, largely Pacific Northwest. Um, I think even your uh, neighbor in the next state over, Santa Fe Spirits, was twenty twelve, so that was still another year or two away. Uh, so when you were deciding to create a distillery that would produce single malt, who did you look to for uh, inspiration and guidance?
2: Well, first of all, I was, I was so naive that, um, you know, I didn't know that there was, there was a craft distilling, you know, Movement either, so I thought I was doing this like super exotic thing, and then as I started to get into it, I realized, oh no, there are a bunch of people that are doing craft distilling, um, and so in terms of you know models for single malts, I you know I really wasn't. I, I started to meet um, through some workshops and things like a fermentation workshop in San Diego. Um, and a kind of one week distilling workshop in, by ADI. <clears throat> I started to meet some other distillers um, and uh, I met the guys at Kings County, uh, you know, they were doing bur- you know, bourbons and um, I-, I wasn't really looking at single malt producers per se, I was looking at other craft distillers for just kind of trying to help, You know, trying to figure out, just trying to navigate the landscape. Um, and so, so yeah, what I found was that, um, you know, there's a great sense of, of camaraderie, um, you know, Lee Metoff at house distillers, um, the guys at, uh, Kings County gave me a ton of advice. Um, the guys at, uh, um, Garrison brothers in Texas, you know, helped me. So to answer your question. I I really kind of wasn't even aware of those single malt producers per se. I was just kind of trying to nap, figure out how to how to make um, you know how to make a craft uh, distillery go. Um, Less so, about the
0: grain, more about the the apparatus around yeah, it. <laughs> okay.
2: Yeah, and then though I should add though as time went on um, <clears throat> and the single malt commission was established. And by the way, they didn't know about us uh, when they started. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were not a founding member. Um, I think we were number maybe 12 or 14 to come into the commission. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, I that was a real eye opener for me. Um, and I was like, oh, heck, <laughs> like for a little distillery that's um, got all our eggs in the single malt basket, this mm-hmm. is huge. Um, this establishment of the commission and what their mission was um so so yeah I joined right away and um yeah they've been really critical t- to I mean obviously look 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 what just happened yep. in terms of the ttb and so yeah that was pivotal and so as as I you know learned that there were more single malt producers I did, you know i met colin in santa fe um and others and so yeah now, and the sense of camaraderie in within the single malt producers is really fun
0: and I, I think that's shown nowhere better than in the fact that i have as as of this recording hopefully it will be published by the time this recording goes live but um, i have an article out that's kind of the guide your basic guide to the american single malt proposed standards of identity spoke to um, Colin, spoke to Owen at Stranahan's, spoke to Steve Hawley. And uh, the one of the biggest things that I came away from these conversations was that was the focus on speaking with one voice mm-hmm. and how even before these regulations were uh, were posted for public comments, that the emphasis was on one voice. You know, if you want to deviate, that's fine, but just not in this group. And everyone kind of voluntarily going along with these regulations and self-regulating, I guess, within the industry, which Mm. is amazing to see a hundred plus distilleries doing that. It's really impressive. Um, And if it makes you feel any better about, you know, not being one of the founding members, I've heard that Benny's back room where it was uh, where the idea was hatched, was very, very small. So (laughs) it may not have been comfortable. (laughs) Um, So, (laughs) <laughs> take that for what you will um, but I'm, I'm I was thrilled to hear about particularly Kings County um, Garrison Brothers I'm, I'm working I'm trying to get Donis on the podcast it has been just murder trying to get in touch with that man but we'll leave that for another day uh, but the guys at Kings County you know, Colin I visit them at least at least once a year which doesn't sound like a lot but it really is <laughs> um, they're only 11 miles away which is like an hour and a half drive but they're only 11 miles um, so Anyway, uh, so going into it uh, from the perspective of the apparatus and the distillery first, knowing that you wanted to create a single malt, but making sure you had the distillery down first, ultimately, why Arizona? Why Tucson?
2: Well, I'm from here. Um, I mean, and I have a you know profound sense of place. Um, I really love Baja, Arizona. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a magical place um, in terms of the landscape, uh, the quality of light, except for like June, July and half of (laughs) August, the quality of light is not so good. And it's actually not a magical place in in June and July. August during our rainy season does get magical again. But anyway, um, no, I um, actually... Grew up till I was eleven in a hotter desert than this, at so Palm Springs. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I moved here, I just thought I was so taken by um, how actually lush the desert is. I mean, it's probably hard for you to imagine, but but um, we get almost too much rainfall to be to c- qualify as a desert. Um, and so we have almost twelve inches of rain a year. So consequently, there are the, the flora, the fauna here is so exotic. We have things like gila monsters and Havelina and Kawadi mundi, which you guys listening can all look up if you want. They're like a raccoon, but more kind of almost more endearing. Um, and you know, all of these, all of these crazy, uh, you know, animals. And then the plant life is is also so exotic. And I should probably stop rambling here, but. Um, <laughs> but yeah it's uh it was out of a love of place um, and um i had a long relationship with mesquite wood having built furniture of it from it for so many years um and then and that actually came out of a love of place as well um real quickly um, early on as a furniture designer i realized that um t- t- for if you wanted a you know spectacular grain you had to go to rainforest woods and then i real which i wasn't inclined to do um and then I realized we have this really beautiful wood growing all around us, um, <clears throat> mesquite, and so, so it, that was a it's a hardwood to deal with, um, you know. It's I could go on about that, but it, but yeah, sense of place. I mean, a sense of place and a and a profound, um, really love of of the Sonoran Desert. So yeah, I mean, I couldn't, I wouldn't have done anything. I, I've if it wouldn't have been here, I wouldn't have done it. You know, so. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that look that's fair and, and that is the answer that i get most most often when i ask that question of why here um <laughs> but that you know it has to be pointed out that for you Stephen, in, in tucson mark uh, in maryland as well you know single malts are not really indigenous or common to either one of those um, at least at least now in, in baltimore you've got old line um, mm-hmm. producing there but and i guess to an extent with santa fe over to one side and then um balcones and garrison on, on the other side got some in the southwest but single malt's not really from those areas if you want to put it that way uh and uh, oh but before i get to that actually one more question about the location itself which was uh whiskey Debock is in what i would consider you know the main metro area of tucson <laughs> you know it's not it's not on the outskirts it's not in Tucson, but it's really a 20 minute drive, 30 minute drive outside. So um, why decide to build a distillery in a metro area as opposed to outside the city?
2: Uh, <clears throat> you know, available warehouse space, essentially. Um, <clears throat> and so um, we, we didn't build, we, you know, we, we lease. Um, and so, yeah, that was, uh, you know, I had to find an industrial zoning um, that had enough square footage, um, and yeah, so we're literally um, ten minutes from downtown Tucson. Um, so yeah, that was just, that's the simple simple answer.
0: Hey, look, it makes sense, and I, I've gotten a growing appreciation for what I call um, garage distilleries, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I mean, then the most positive way, it's those ones that you know you pull up the steel. Sheet in front, and you walk in. Um, I don't know what the front of uh Wichita park looks like, but that's often the case in, in yeah. New York City. It's, at least. It's, it's,
2: we don't have a very appealing public face. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> we get a lot of a lot of visitors, but it's hard, it's hard to find, and uh, it's in you know it's in an industrial park. So yeah,
0: right, the the distillery has a face to radio. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> so the with the the location you're in the as you said it's a desert that kind of just makes it into the desert you got uh, from what i heard two rainy seasons the one in the summer and then when's the other one
2: yeah so the summer is our big one we typically get like 6 inches of rain but from you know july through july and august um, and then we have a you know over the rest of the year we get the rest of our rainfall but in during the winter we probably get maybe 2 3 inches typically. So yeah, but the really the monsoon season, the you know, the really spectacular pure blue sky in the morning, puffy clouds building up over the mountains <clears throat> um, as the morning progresses, you know, developing into these huge, you know, cumulonimbus, dark clouds that like, you know, basically burst into rain in the afternoon, not okay. every day. But every day there's a threat of that, and so the drama is really great.
0: <laughs> it's like living in Florida for two and a half months,
1: basically. <laughs> <laughs> but definitely, uh, yeah. if you're if you're interested, look up some photography of monsoon season in mm-hmm. Tucson in the Sonoran Desert. It is it, awe-inspiring. I feel like it's the literal definition of awesome. Yeah, it <laughs> is full of awe. <laughs> True. Yeah,
0: <laughs> absolutely fair. And uh, also, to be fair, Mark, I promise I have some questions for you, too. So just hang with me. Over there. <laughs> uh, with the with the mesquite wood that you were using. I'm sorry. I'm jumping ahead of myself. I always have an outline and I'll go on tangents, but I try to go back to the outline whenever I'm not sure. So with the <laughs> with the Sonoran Desert, you're at a, kind of a moderate to low elevation for a desert. I think it's like 2,300 uh, feet elevation, something like that. Yep. Um, so lower elevation a desert with rainfall so some kind of not contradictory but um more gray area kind of desert so when you know what does this mean for the environment in which you're distilling and and aging the whiskey
2: um you mean what impact do we have on the environment or what does the environment how does the environment affect our whiskey making?
0: I, I mean, I, I, meant the latter, but, um, the first, the former is also a good question.
2: Well, real quickly on, on that front, <clears throat> we, you know, distilleries use a lot of water. Um, <clears throat> so we have just like the whole West and so many other parts of the country really, um, the, the you know, water conservation is huge. Um, so we are, we have a long ways to go. We've made strides in water cons- our conservation um, measures. Uh, we still have a long way to go on that. Um, so, you know, we, we talked talk for a long time about, you know, agriculture and industry um, water usage. So we won't we won't do that today, but it is a real a real issue that needs to be addressed. Um, and so we're doing our darndest to, to address it on our, in our little, you know, our, in our little operation. Um, so, um, maybe I'll start a little bit, but I'll let Mark take over, uh, on, you know, how the climate affects our whiskey making. Um, the biggest thing is, is, um, is actually, why don't you just, oh.
1: <laughs> why don't you just riff for a while, sure. I'll, I'll, maybe I'll jump in. Yeah, no, Um. probably the, the largest impact that we see is the temperature fluctuation. Um, It's very unique because especially like when you get into the early to late spring, before you get into the summer, you will have these massive temperature swings within 24 hours. And we're talking like this winter, it struck me that I could get up go out my door and it was 31 degrees outside. And by the time I left, um, and then by the time I left work, I left the distillery, it would be 72. So you'd have this 40 degree swing in a 24 hour period. And as you know, ethanol is extremely volatile and it, responds incredibly quickly to these variations in temperature these variations in humidity and so we're getting a lot of push and pull in these barrels in a short amount of time and then because tucson is unique when it has this uh when they have the when we have our monsoon season we're also seeing those fluctuations in humidity like you know we will have winters where it's five, six, seven percent humidity, but in the middle of monsoon, you can have days where it's 20 to 30 percent. And so every single one of those things is having an impact on your aging process, what your angel share is going to be, you know, the level of tannin extraction that you're getting from the wood, the level of lignin extraction. And we had kind of talked about, you know, this was born of this love of place. And it leans into that, that affection. And that's part of it is having these major impacts, you know, you are getting a single malt that is going to be completely different than something that you're going to see coming out of Scotland or something coming out of the Pacific Northwest, or even something coming out of, you know, like Balcones in Texas. Like it is just such a unique and, brilliant, again, I, I come back to terroir and I struggle with that word sometimes, even though we've established whiskey terroir as a thing, but it is yeah, just, it is Everyone so struggles
0: unique. with that word, so you're you're good.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. But yeah, like that's, that's probably the largest, um, kind of going back to the first point that Stephen had made, um, another one of the big impacts is, you know, us trying to keep a close eye on how we are utilizing those resources as well. Uh, you know, we're constantly looking at ways we can save water. So we're look, we, you know, we adjust our mash process to try and be a little more efficient. We, you know, make sure we're looking at yeast strains that are going to be a little more amenable to the pH that we're dealing with. And so, you know, everything that we're doing, whether it's, you know, leaning into the environment that we have around us or, doing our best to minimize our impact on the environment plays a role in that final product that goes into the bottle. And I'll, I'll add too. Um, so we do malt
2: for our mesquited, um, whiskeys. Um, and so the malt, so our, all of that, all the things that that Mark just mentioned, uh, affect the, you know, how we approach malting seasonally, Mm -hmm. uh, as well. So yeah, it's, uh, the climate here is, uh, is very very unique. Um, that forty degree shift, uh, that forty degree shift in t- temps uh, in a twenty four hour period um, that Mark mentioned is called. You may know this, but it's called the diurnal shift. Um, a couple months ago, um, it was pointed out uh, actually at the ACS, actually at the uh, commission meeting, the the diurnal shift in Scotland is about six degrees. Um, that's their that's their delta low to high in a twenty four hour period. <laughs> so, so yeah, there's it's real different here.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, four years, that's insane. Um, with oh, where do I want to go now? There's so many places I want to go here. So, with the diurnal shift being like that, I would imagine there's also some kind of a latent effect from the from the environment from the temperature and humidity swings that uh, perhaps a whiskey won't taste different if you were to go in and sample from a cask uh, the whiskey may now taste different at like nine in the morning versus nine at night maybe it does you know but um, but you would certainly notice a difference in the taste by season which is how it's mm-hmm. interacting with the wood uh, uh, Mark, as a distiller and and as you're managing the casks how do you kind of account for that and deal with those changes?
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, So one of the things, you know, we're lucky enough that we're small enough that we can sensory every one of our barrels as we come to harvest it. Um, I was having a conversation with Nicole Austin at uh, Cascade Hollow, Mm -hmm. and she had made the comment about how when she had gone over to Dickel, the hardest thing she had to learn was how to taste without being able to taste everything. And like, that's a challenge. But with us, you know, we are small enough that myself and our production team, every week we will sit down and we will pull between 12 to 24 barrels and we will go through and we will sample every single one of those. And if it's going into something that's going to be a special release, we will take very intricate notes. But say for a lot of our core SKUs, it is just a matter of is this checking those boxes that we need for consistency and for a high quality product? Mm -hmm. Um, It is interesting, like we've already discovered just from looking at our proof and our yields from each barrel, we age in maybe a 950 square foot space, but there is a distinct difference between the barrels that are on the bottom pallets and the barrels that are on the top pallets. And sometimes it may just happen that a you know a set of barrels from the same batch number one ended up on the bottom the other ended up on the top and you're going to notice a change in that and so for us it's a matter of we know like we have our you know kind of platonic ideal of what the whiskey in the bottle needs to be and we also know that within this set of barrels we're going to get some barrels that are going to be maybe a little too heavy on tannin by themselves. But if we take this other barrel that is going to be like this big vanilla bomb, we know we can take the two of them together and it's going to get us into that range that we want. Um, And it is also a matter of when we harvest, Um, laying stuff down in the winter we know we need a little extra time because it isn't going to have as much interaction with that wood we're not going to have those massive temperature fluctuations laying stuff down in the summer we maybe don't have to wait as long on that because it is having you know 110 degree days and so it is just a matter of you know keeping good track of data and having the palates and having the group of people that can taste it. You know, every one of our palates is different. And so to have the four of us, or occasionally we'll rope Steven in to force him to drink whiskey at 10 in the morning <laughs> when we're doing our barrel harvests, but it's just a matter of knowing how your Rick House is going to react. And then again, while this barrel, when you taste it by yourself, you're going to go, well, this isn't Right knowing how to blend it for that final product is key.
0: Gotcha, and you're absolutely right. Nicole kind of went from, went from I think directly from Kings County to Cascade mm-hmm. Hollow. So um, quite a jump, quite yeah. a jump, let's say. <laughs> um just, uh, I didn't get to stop at Cascade Hollow, but I was just down in Tennessee. So I passed by it and I, I mm-hmm. wish I had time to stop in uh, just, to, just to take a look. So with the, so I want to jump back for a second and um mark i know uh sorry steven i know we we're gonna uh, have to let you go a little bit early so i definitely want to hit this one last area before uh, we let you go which is the evolution of the stills you were using to create this whiskey so if i've got the history right uh you started with kind of a five gallon playing around went to a 40 gallon and a couple years later eventually to the 500 um where are you at now
2: uh, we're still on the 500 gallon still. Um, so yeah. <clears throat> and um, yeah, it's making really good whiskey for us. It's a, it's a pot still. It has a little uh, kind of uh, four foot tall column on it, but there's no reflux component in it. Um, mm. And so, uh, so yeah, it's not as pretty as my little uh, Alembic 40 gallon still was, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's making really good whiskey. So <clears throat> we just did a, um, uh, production expansion a few months ago, uh, we doubled the size of about five tanks. Um, probably the next step would be uh, adding a still. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we we almost doubled our production uh, capacity uh, with sizing up our fermenters and some of our uh, HLT and CLT and some other things. So uh, we took them took on some more floor space next door and uh so yeah still on the 500 gallon
0: still though and i'm curious uh, you said no, re- no reflux component um what does that do for the flavor and, and why that decision
2: well i mean as as you probably know in scotland they just use pot stills um and the more you uh, just for your listeners um the more you more you distill i'm sorry yeah the more times you distill the the more flavor you lose. Uh, so a column uh, reflux column still basically redistills the distillate as it goes up the column. And so you're you're you know kind of losing flavor there. Now you can turn that off. Um, you know, some people have a combination where they can turn that off. But anyway, we weren't interested in any kind of vodka or gin um, <clears throat> necessarily. So we just went with the with the pot still. I mean, we were we we're basically riffing on the Scottish model of whiskey making. So there are some differences in terms of um, aging. Uh, you know, we age in new oak primarily, although we do a lot of finishing and special casts. But um, but um, but using that Scottish model of whiskey making was kind of my kind of guidepost um, in developing the the distillery.
0: And I- I have a note here that you had two kind of guides with that. The first one being you wanted a Speyside style in terms of, of taste and the Macallan 12 for level of quality and caliber for that.
2: Yeah. So that, um, so I always gravitated oddly enough. I mean, occasionally we drink, you know, Isla scotches. Um, but, um, but I usually gravitated toward uh Speyside, um or highland scotches. And as, as you know, they don't use any peat or much peat to dry their malt in those regions. Um and so yeah, that so the actually the Macallan 12 was my model for our whiskey Dalbach classic. Mm-hmm. Um and so yeah, but so oddly, the you know, the real um brainchild of the whole project was to kind of use the isla model um with this desert wood. Um and so so yeah that became really the the whole reason we started this whiskey project was was our mesquited Dorado. And by the way we're trying to push that term into the national vocabulary, mesquited instead of Peated. and it's definitely gaining a lot of traction uh nationally. So
0: <laughs> it's a it's a good phrase. I mean, it's accurate. <laughs> More than anything else, it's accurate. Yeah. You know, you're not going to find peat if you're uh, looking at, at whiskey del Bac. It's not peat. Yeah. Oh, no, you It's smoke. It's different. Yeah. Um, and I've I've got a whole tangent and a whole uh, group of people who I've got to do a, a peat tasting with just to understand that peat does not equal smoke. And there's a whole, you know, mm-hmm. there's books and libraries that could be written on that. But anyway, <laughs> the. So with the uh, Speyside style and the McAllen 12, I mean, when I tried the classic in particular, immediately my mind went to Speyside. It was incredibly fruity, um, a little less malt forward than maybe a Glenfiddich or, or, or Glenlivet would be, but um, just the fruitiness itself, stone fruits, orchard fruits was classic Speyside Highland. Um, and then going over to the Dorado, with the whiskey smoke, it was a very different whiskey for me. It had the, like you said, the smoke, it was not overpowering at all. It was very, um, what I would consider mild. Um, you know, if some, if you're someone who doesn't drink smoked whiskeys at all, it's probably going to be strong <laughs> for you, but for, you know, it was a mi- very mild, subtle smoke meant to impart flavor rather than blow your palate out of the thing. So when, uh, when you were, uh, designing. The Dorado, and I really mean design in whatever sense of the word you want to take it, uh, how many variations did you have to play around with before you kind of settled on the, the smoke level, um, if applicable, the PPM level that you wanted?
2: Um, well, um, I guess I can address that in terms of when we did start putting stuff in bottles, like when we started bottling whiskey, um, the initial the first Dorado expressions were like a little over the top. I mean, they kind of hit you over the head um, <clears throat> with the smoke. Um, and so I think um, at least twice and maybe three times over the first, I'm going to say four years, um, we dialed the smoke level back by uh, by blending in a little bit of our classic um, with the mesquited um, whiskey that had come out of the barrel. So so now we've got it to a point where we really like the balance of the smoke, um, you know, and all the underlying uh, flavor profiles. Um, So one thing that I was very um, pleasantly surprised at learning when I first tasted what we were <laughs> what we were making in terms of the mesquited stuff, is that the mesquite doesn't give you that um, m- those medicinal notes that the heavily peated isla scotches give you, um, and the, actually those are that kind of component is what I never really liked about those um, isla scotches, um, and so. So yeah dorado is just softer on the palate and it doesn't give you that um kind of band-aid um iodine note that the that the peat gives so so yeah it is very, it's a very distinct um flavor and 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 aroma I mean um I, sometimes I tell people um the mesquite smoke is very um evocative of a desert campfire if, if you've Grown up, or camped in the desert, ever, or or uh, walking through a your neighborhood on a winter's night when people are burning mesquite in their fireplaces, and it's very um, it's very um, kind of evocative and uh, uh, just a wonderful aroma.
0: Yeah, it has a very uh, kind of dry rub smoker, not even a barbecue, but a dry rub smoker kind of taste to it. Uh, I really love it. I've now only had a couple of whiskeys that use mesquite, I'm glad to add the Dorado to that to that list. Uh, and with, let's see, one other uh, part that I wanted to ask about with the mesquite in particular. Hmm. You know, no, I'm gonna cut that question.
2: <laughs>
0: it's good, we're good. So, um, so uh, We'll go back to, uh, Mark, um, when it's just you and I, we'll go back a little more to, to the um, malting process and uh, the nitty gritty of that. Uh, but before, uh, Stephen, before you let you leave, I do want to talk to you both about the standards of identity and the pro standard of identity. Now, uh, Stephen, when you were on the Taste of Arizona podcast, this is about a year ago, October 2021, you were hopeful that you'd have regulations in place by the end of, December that year. Federal government being what it is, uh, hey, we've got to step forward. We've got a proposed standard, and um, I think by the time around when this episode goes live, the comment period will have ended. The public comment period. So, uh, you know, first off, how excited were you when the when it finally was like, oh my god, they're going to put these out, and um, what are you seeing from your seat? At whiskey del Bach, in terms of what the next steps will be and and what the timeline looks like
2: what the timeline looks like you said for
0: for, for-, for yeah for for formal categorical recognition
2: yeah so um we're coming up on a couple of months here so the 60 days is uh, getting close to to the end um The commission um, is going to you probably you talked to Steve about this, I'm sure. And so you probably know this already, but the commission is going to submit um, the comments, basically our collective comments Mm -hmm. as as one voice. Um, And then apparently they will take 30 days to evaluate. The TTB, that is, will take 30 days to evaluate all the comments and um, kind of it's almost, I mean, they've asked, I mean, so all the comments they will take under consideration and then it's kind of like a poll, I guess, on Mm -hmm. certain somewhat controversial things like flavorings and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And the 30 days, I am not sure if that is (laughs) <laughs> written in stone we are not uh, you know it's taken six years to do this uh so i think our expectations are probably probably on the low side um but when it happens uh boy it's going to be cause for celebration um so so yeah super excited i mean um uh, you know my emo- you know my emotions were like through the roof when they finally decided to um uh, you know, said, said that they were going to post, post the, uh, the, uh, you know, designation, um, standards. So just like everybody else's, every other single malt producer, although like I, again, I mean, you know, being a distillery that is solely focused at this point on American single malts, that means a lot to us. Um, so, so yeah, I, I was, um, I'm a. Rec- uh, I just joined the board of the Single malt, American Single Malt Whiskey Commission, um, and so I'm kind of um, <laughs> kind of starting to get over my awe at my other my my fellow board members because I really have a lot of respect for what those guys have done, and then just kind of the intrepid, you know, nonstop, just never say die. Um, efforts that they've gone through and, you know, especially Steve Hawley, he's, he's been amazing. Um, so, so yeah, here we are. We're, we're ready to ready to rock and roll.
0: Hey, whiskey ringers. I hope you've been taking advantage of that podcast only code for the Scotch Malt whiskey society. They've got around 20 bottlings coming out each month and there's never a shortage of new things to explore this month's focus their October distillery dive is distillery number five. This famous lowland distillery will show you something completely different and you've probably never had before. This isn't your floral and fruity space side, but it's also not that smoky sometimes medicinal and maritime isla. It's truly unique and in a category and region all its own. The distillery dive bottlings were announced on October 11th. So you might still find some available if not, keep an eye out. There are always more bottles coming from this distillery and others and always new journeys to explore. There are also currently five fall bundles available, packaging multiple bottles together from sometimes the same and sometimes different distilleries into a discounted set for you to discover. Remember to use the promo code WRP for 20% off your annual membership and you can visit the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society website to sign up and order via the link in the show notes. And, uh... I hope, I don't think this will cause any deviation from from the one voice, uh, but you mentioned earlier that Whiskey Del Bach uses mostly new oak barrels uh, with the, if I heard you correctly, with the exception of when you're using for finishing casks. Right. Um, for Whiskey Del Bach specifically, specifically, uh, is that still the plan going forward? Still new oak regulations won't change anything about that?
1: Uh, Yeah, let's let me uh, pass that over to Mark. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that is that is the plan. Um, You know, one of the things that I tell people when they come in. um, So not only do we kind of deviate by utilizing new oak, we also break with tradition by mostly using quarter casks, you know, majority of our aging is done in 15 gallon barrels. And one of the reasons that, you know, we're obviously excited about the designation is it does not specifically give limitations on the lower end of cask size or whether it is second use, third use, first use. And there is you know, some negative connotations around utilizing such small format barrels. But I always tell people it's just because a lot of distilleries haven't figured out how to use them. You know, it is not a one-to-one, 15 to 53. You have to adjust your production practices to utilize the format correctly. And, you know, as Stephen has said, and, you know, I will always say, I think proof is in our bottle that if you know what you're doing, it doesn't really matter because we're producing whiskeys that are getting named 2021 Wine Enthusiast Best of the Year. And we're getting 93, 94, 95 ratings consistently. And so for us, yeah, the plan is to continue to lean heavily on new oak. Uh, One of the things that we have started implementing over the past quarter has been utilizing our own barrels a little bit more. Um, We have started playing around with second fill and even some third fill of our... 15 gallons, Uh, the goal with that is one, to be a little more responsible environmentally versus doing a one and done and then it goes out the door. So we can, the more usages we can get out of it, the less footprint we're having. It makes more sense for us financially. Uh, Small format barrels are very expensive. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Their prices do not scale uh, with their size. And also it helps with the addition of a little more, adding a little more complexity. Um, again, like as you know, with like most American whiskeys with rye and bourbons, going into that first use barrel creates very punchy flavors. You know, it's very heavy on tannin, very heavy on vanilla. One of the reasons I think, like you had mentioned, you don't get that malt forwardness in the classic, like you do say with like a space site, is that is that new barrel. That new barrel is, you know, for better or for worse, kind of overpowering that malt base sometimes. Mm-hmm. And we'd like to play that up a little more. And, you know, I think one of the best pieces of advice I ever got when I first started distilling was the day that you taste something you've made and you're like, this is absolutely perfect. You need to stop distilling <laughs> because there's always room for improvement. You know, yeah. you can be a little more efficient. You can create more complexity, you can. And so I don't foresee us moving away from from new barrels anytime soon, because we've created, again, a very unique product that we think is high quality. Now it's just kind of turning our eyes to what can we do to create additional nuance within that.
0: Gotcha. And I'm going to throw one more question uh, while, while Stephen's still here, which is, and it's it's going to take aim at something you just said, both of you just said, which was about, <laughs> um, you know, ratings and reviews and awards and such. So this was, uh, throw back a little bit, uh, also in the Taste of Arizona podcast, this is, Stephen, when you had your daughter, Amanda, on with you. And um, something that she said really resonated with me, which was that uh, she prefers reviews to awards. I'm reading this to make sure I get this right. Prefers reviews to awards because reviews give more engagement and discussion, leading to a greater knowledge and learning about the product. So while the, so I say that because while the awards are, you know, well they're well-earned, they're well-deserved, uh, and as are the great reviews, I'm curious if that mindset is still the mindset that you go with that the education about it and the learning about the product is ultimately more important than, than the award.
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah, we, definitely, yeah, like we're all about education. Um, <clears throat> we love to talk about, you know, I mean, so really awards and, and ratings are about public acceptance, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the more we can talk about our what we do, why we do it, um, our you know the level of passion that we have for whatever we're you know it is we're doing, all those things, um, you know, um, those increase, um, you know consumer engagement. And so, um, so yeah, better to, better to be able to educate and talk and, you know, and relate and tell, you know, tell why we're doing what we're doing to folks than, you know, just getting the,
1: the awards. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. And I would to kind of echo that from a, from a distiller's standpoint, you know, one of the hardest lessons you learn is to not take, negative feedback personally. Mm. Um, The the joke that I make, like when I ride along, anytime I've ridden along with salespeople has been like, I feel a little bit like when the distiller is riding along, you present the bottle and you say, here's my heart and soul, (laughs) please shit on it. (laughs) But getting those ratings, whether they're good or bad is beneficial because You know, sometimes when you are surrounded by people who love you and encourage you, you may not get the most honest feedback. It may be Mm -hmm. like, yeah, no, this is great Mm -hmm. when it's terrible. And so having someone who owes you nothing to be able to say, this is outstanding, you know, Mm -hmm. it's nuanced, it's balanced, that means a lot. But even on the other end, getting that feedback that says, this feels off, this feels a little too hot, or it's over extracted. That is information that we need because we drink our own Kool-Aid. And so to know what, how people actually feel is absolutely, you know, it's priceless. But also then to not take that too far, to also have enough confidence in your product to when someone says something and go, eh, you're wrong on this one. <laughs>
2: Yeah. David, um, I would love to keep talking to you. I would love it more than what I have to go do now, which is talk to potential investors. We're doing a capital round. Um, And so Mark's capable hands are going to be totally great uh, for the next uh, portion of this. and I want to thank you. Uh, this has been so pleasant and so fun. And I admire your um, your the amount of homework you did. Uh, so that's not often seen, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll,
0: we'll see what Mark reports back afterwards. He may not be. <laughs> afterwards, But um, Stephen, thank you so much for your time. I promised you a clean exit. So um, best of luck, I should say. With, thank you. Thank you. With the MS around, But um, we'll give you a clean break. Thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, and we'll take a quick break. Uh, um, yeah, real quickly,
2: David. If I could just say, if you yep. ever are tempted to come out to Southern Arizona, we would love to show you what we do, um, and we'll show you around uh, Baja Arizona too. It's
1: it's a fun place.
0: I would love to come. <laughs> Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Okay. Good good luck, <laughs> Ada. Do you wanna go with? You wanna go with Pops? Hi hi. Go with him. <laughs> <clears throat> all right
0: all right it's just you and me
1: excellent good. i will uh i will do my best to stay same level so you don't have to mess around with your uh audio levels too much
0: <laughs> no sound sounds good so far um so um yeah i'm gonna include this as a a uh, little break put the okay. my uh, my sponsors in there um so i'm thinking to uh you know, in the next uh I'm I'm only gonna keep you another half hour max. Perfect. Perfect. I'm gonna I'll keep it uh keep it tight on that one. Um but definitely just talk a little bit more about the maturation. Um I mm-hmm. wanna go back to the grains, um, the yeast you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um then just looking over um oh I have to ask uh how you how you're maturing in the warehouse, like done a house kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think we'll start with that. There was one other question. I I'm just looking at one other note that I made that uh, maybe you can answer, but I'll throw it to you before we okay. <laughs> go back, just in case. <clears throat> so, um, in uh, 2018, a, uh, a previous I don't think she's with Bisi Dabak anymore, <clears throat> um, but uh, I did not write her name down. I had her name before. But she was on the Spirit Guide podcast with uh, Pedro from Seven Grand and San Diego and and elsewhere. And um, of note was that the classic at that time was um was eighty four proof instead mm-hmm. of the ninety two proof it is now. Uh, as is the as is the Dorado. But she was speaking uh, specifically about the classic, mm-hmm. and I was curious about what initiated that proof change. Yes, I two. can I can speak
1: so, to that. <laughs> all right.
0: Perfect. All right, so we'll jump right back in. Thanks for listening to that little sponsor break. I am thrilled to welcome back Mark. We're still at Whiskey box Distillery in Tucson, Arizona, and uh, we've lost even, of course, for the rest of the episode. But we're going to get into some really uh, on the ground in the still house kind of questions here, some rapid fire and some discussion. So uh, first one is just to clarify a couple of points that we had talked about earlier, which was uh, number one, the maturation. So you said uh, that you're maturing in, in a 950 square foot space, which to me is insane because my apartment's about that size and um, <laughs> it's overflowing. I I've one barrel in here and I can't imagine having however many you guys have granted it's 53 gallon, but still I can't <laughs> imagine Um, So within that space, um, how are you setting up the, uh, the barrels to age?
1: So we switched over, it would have been, I believe around 2020, we switched over to high volume palletized uh, high density storage. Um, So in the past, obviously we did kind of the traditional Rick house setup on barrel racks using a mix of, you know, traditional metal barrel racks as well as some unique custom ones that Stephen had built. Uh, But as we grew um, and as we, you know, we staring down the barrel of even more limited space, we realized this was something we needed to start exploring. Um, and 2020, we actually brought on our current CEO, uh, Kent Cheeseman, who's formerly, excuse me, formerly with High West. Um, and he had actually oversaw their move into high density. And so, you know, we looked at the pros and cons and it just kind of came down to, you know, we need to find a way to be more efficient with how we're utilizing our space. And so uh, currently we, again, it is a very tight space. Um, we utilize six barrels per pallet. Those barrels are strapped down and then we stack those five pallets high. And then that is in a, uh, I'll have to go back and look at my nose for exact numbers, but essentially we have about a 10 by 10. So 10 rows by 10 columns. Um, I can tell you off the top of my head that if we are utilizing the entire space and is completely full with barrels, we can fit around 915 gallons aging at the same time. So, uh, so yeah, it is, it's just a matter of, you know, laying things out, uh, keeping a close eye on efficiencies and, and yeah, just look, you know, kind of the, the the reality of having to work with what you have at the time.
0: (laughs) Fully understandable. So when, when you made that shift over from uh, from the, as I said, the more traditional rack style to mm-hmm. the high density, high volume palletized, immediately my mind goes to, um, you know, there's going to be less airflow around the barrels. Mm-hmm. And uh, particularly with the wide temperature and humidity uh, swings that you guys go through, uh, I'm finding it difficult to figure out exactly how to ask, like how... Did you, or did you taste a difference in the whiskey from the changeover and, um, how has it affected the internal structure of, of the aging and the whiskey since the changeover?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, probably the most noticeable, um, impact, and this kind of goes back to what we were discussing earlier was noticing the bottom of the stack and the top of the stack they can be right next to each other. You can have the exact same batch and it is going to be different. You are going to have, you know, a little more stringency on one versus a little bit of softness on the other. Uh, One thing that we did though, is obviously realizing that condensing these so much, we are gonna have a lot less air movement around it. We actually did place the rickhouse and aging directly underneath one of our negative airflow fans. And Mm -hmm. so even in the winter when things cool off, we constantly have those fans running. Uh, we're just making sure we're pulling as much up from the bottom to the top and getting as much out and bringing as much fresh in. Um, it did also then force us to again, be a little more aware of our sensory on mm-hmm. each of those barrels where as in the past, you know, there was a little bit more leeway of, we can reasonably expect these barrels in this section are all going to taste within these set parameters. All of a sudden you're dealing with less air movement. You're doing with higher concentrations of ethanol within specific areas. It just came down to, we kind of need to know what's going on in each and every one of these.
0: Gotcha. So the, uh, I'm not sure I've heard it before, or maybe I haven't heard it in that way, but the, um, the negative airflow fan. So is uh, how akin to that is, uh, like, you know, a heat cycling or, um, or for lack of a better term, just having fans on in the distillery to move in the warehouse to move air around?
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, So basically, as opposed to say like a traditional fan where, you know, it's going to be spinning, it's going to be pushing that air. What's that's doing is that is we have a fan on the the roof that is drawing air out through the Mm -hmm. roof. So um, that does help uh, with the air movement. And I'll have to, I'll have to double check on that, but we have two of them. And I, I, know it's not a 100% true negative airflow, um, obviously because then we would have to have air input coming through. Um, yeah. but basically what we are doing is that is working to kind of dissipate that ethanol buildup, um, as well as to keep basically just air moving around those barrels.
0: Right. So it's, it's you're not really, um, trying to counter mother nature, too much. It's more just, right. like I said, just keeping the airflow going. And importantly, making sure there's not too much ethanol in that air. <laughs>
1: exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I think of it. Um, so I grew up in the Midwest and we had what we called our attic fan, which if, you know, someone cooked bacon or burnt something, you'd flip on the attic fan, and that would just basically try and suck all of that air up through the roof to clear that out. That's essentially how these blowers are functioning. Um, in the summer, they also have um, evaporative media on them. So they essentially fun- function as swamp coolers in the summer. So that does also help keep our production area a little less miserable when it's 110 yeah. out.
0: That's fair. i visited visit um, a warehouse in Kentucky. It was on- only <laughs> quote, only you know 90 92 degrees but it's like 95 percent humidity and my friend and i were just dying in that and it was yeah. it's it was, their warehouse was um just the top half of an amish barn so it was mm-hmm. it was not a huge space but they were using 30 and 53 gallon barrels and uh it was hot it was mm-hmm. terrible up there it's a lot of fun, but it was terrible. We were both like, <laughs> we lost 10 pounds in an hour long tasting.
1: I would say just uh, that, w- just that water weight.
0: <laughs> yeah. just the water weight, uh, better than any, you know, diuretic, but, um, <laughs> so with the, uh, with the barrels too, I wanted to ask is there was a point in the past, I know that you, know, you played around, Stephen played around with, um different size barrels from Mm. anything from that two gallon mesquite barrel to um (laughs) potentially trying some 53s as well and also the barrels for aging so besides the barrels for for finishing rather not aging finishing so talking about your standard barrels Mm -hmm. use mostly 15 gallon um i have a note that at some point uh whiskey was experimenting with like a 30 gallon or as large as a 53 uh I think you may have answered this anyway, but just to double check, Um, you settled on the 15 eventually because that was just the one that fit the whiskey profile the best.
1: Yeah. So, um, so obviously like a lot of smaller craft distilleries, 15 was good because, you know, you get faster extractions, so you're able to put out an aged spirit a little bit faster. And over the years, um, the original head distiller, along with Stephen, again, were able to dial that in and figure out We need to be making more narrow hearts cuts because we're obviously not going to have time to let some of that oxidation take place and let maybe some of those unpleasant phenols burn off and so Mm. for a long time it was just kind of a matter of necessity you know like a lot of craft distilleries that's where a lot of decisions come down to this is how we have to make it work um and yeah, like we have currently have three 53 gallon barrels that are sitting out there aging right now. Uh, one is four years old, the other two are just over two. Uh, you know, they're not where we're happy with them yet. you know we, we still pull and taste them about once a quarter just to see how they're developing. Uh, and then for thirties, you know, yeah. In the past, Whiskey Bach has used thirties not uncommonly. Uh, the the complete and utter banning of thirties can be laid at my feet. <laughs> uh, I've never liked thirties. Uh, I've I've worked with fifty threes. I've worked as large as seventy, and I've worked as small as five. Uh, it's just been my experience and my personal taste that thirties tend to be an odd size and i feel tend to leave a little bit of astringency that you don't get um and my theory i have no science to back this up but my theory is because it's kind of in a mushy middle uh with five tens and fifteens again if you know what you're doing you know where to make your cuts you know when to start censoring the barrels and you pull them before they overextract, or you know to let them sit a little extra so you can get these punchier notes into maybe a short-aged 53. Mm -hmm. Um, My experience has been with 30s. It tends to be in this range where it sits too long and you get that same overextraction, or it sits too little and you kind of have a flat tasting spirit. Um, that's not to say that there aren't people out there that are making delicious whiskey with 30 they are um it's just that was kind of one of the things when i came in was like let's keep exploring 53s you know let's see how we can develop that profile it makes more sense financially we're storing more whiskey in a more cost-effective barrel but it, it kind of was also you know we've we know what we're doing with 15s and let's lean into that and let's you know, continue to develop those flavor profiles.
0: It makes, makes sense. Absolutely fair. Um, still, still using through all that, um, a number three char from the barrel mill. Uh,
1: yes. So, uh, we do a medium plus toast and then a number three char on top of that medium plus toast. Uh, one of the reasons that we really, you know, and we make sure when we're getting our barrels, it does have that medium plus, uh, One thing that struck me about single malt, especially because we are producing it in the more traditional Scottish style, which means we are fermenting and distilling off grain. You know, we use a traditional louder ton. We're producing a traditional distiller's beer. Other distilleries I was at, we did the American model of on grain fermentation, on grain distillation Mm -hmm. that creates these big bold flavors, but with the off grain you have this more kind of delicate flavor profile going into the barrel. And I always like to compare a charred, like a charred barrel versus a toasted and charred barrel is like the difference between a well-smoked rack of ribs and setting ribs on the grill to simply char the inside and outside. Yeah, Yeah. You're, technically getting the same thing, you're getting cooked meat, but a nice low slow, you get that lovely smoke ring inside of the rib. That's kind of what the medium toast is doing. That's letting some of those uh, sugars get extracted a little bit nicer. And again, just really accentuates a little bit of that nuance. And that's especially important using those smaller format barrels. Um, Again, larger format, you can let them sit, you can let them develop, you, we hit 10 months and we're starting to sensory. And I think the longest we've ever really left anything in a 15 is around 15 months.
0: Gotcha. I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of the toasted barrel. Um, it's mm-hmm. one of the few crazes of the last couple of years that I'm, I'm behind. Not everyone did mm-hmm. it well or did it with the right reasons, but right, um, when done for the right reasons it, with the right thought, behind, thought process <laughs> behind it, it, yes, it makes always... a lot of
1: sense the conversation i always have and i always tell my staff and granted the decision for the medium plus was happened before i came along but i i agreed wholeheartedly with it but as i always tell the staff i've done this for a reason it may not be a good reason (laughs) and (laughs) i may backpedal on it and be like wow that was a terrible reason we should never do that again but the point is yeah that purposefulness that's we have put some thought into why we want to utilize it. And that is one where, uh, that has definitely paid dividends for our product.
0: Awesome. And uh, going to that, the, you said you, you keep things in a 15 gallon about 15 months. Is that what you said? Our,
1: our average is a year, um, <laughs> but we start censoring around 10 months, uh, kind of going back to what we talked about at the beginning, the seasonality plays a big impact um if we know you know we've laid it down in the summer season we had an especially like 2020 we had an especially arid monsoon season like it was actually one of the worst in years those didn't have the advantage of having a little bit of extra humidity during Mm -hmm. their aging process and so we had noticed when we were censoring and polling that those had a more punchy kind of more stringent note. And so we actually had to spread some of those barrels across multiple blendings. So, gotcha. so that's why, again, 10, 10 months is we're going to start checking on it. Average is a year to 13 months. And then the longest is usually around 15.
0: Gotcha. All right. So we've got about 15 left. I want to, and I've got, of course, way too many questions, as always, that <laughs> can't be answered in the time period. But um, the next one I wanted to jump to was that um, a, uh, a previous employee, I don't think she's with Wiskey anymore, anymore, um, Dale, mm-hmm. uh, had been on a uh, podcast that I, I love to listen to, which is uh, the Spirit Guide podcast with Pedro from Seven Grand and and the associated establishments. Um, when uh, when she was there in 2018, this is one of the earlier episodes that they did, uh, the Whiskey Del Boc Classic was at uh, 84 proof. And I was listening to that, and it was after I had tasted uh, the current and the, the current classic and the Dorado, and I noticed that now it's at 92.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, so uh, when and why did that uh, changeover happen?
1: Uh, you know, a handful of reasons. Um, you know, the, the 84 was really nice, but As pallets developed and, you know, as we kind of expanded our reach and we got more and more feedback, we started to hear kind of, as you know, like currently now, one of the big fads is, you know, barrel strength, you know, people like Mm -hmm. people want that higher ethanol, they want that spice, they want that heat. For us, it was, yeah. So So for us, it was actually a slow increase. Um, We actually originally increased the proof to 90 um, and had really good reactions to that, got a lot of really great feedback. Then the final pitch, pitch to 92 was actually mostly based on an aesthetics thing. Um, one of the things that we're very proud of, you know, we do not chill filter. We run our product through a basic paper filter before it goes into a bottle just to catch any char that may come through. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you have some of these super oily batches, Say a bottle hangs out in an air-conditioned truck, or you know, sits on a shelf in an air-conditioned uh, liquor store. You're going to start to see flocculation. You're going to start seeing those little wispy clouds. Um, and some people saw that, noticed it, and not realizing what it was, you know, complained to us. And they were like, mm-hmm. you know, something's off about your product. Some things. And so for us, it was kind of. After playing around with it, 92 is still a really nice, balanced proof. You know, it's not overly hot. You can pour it. You can enjoy it neat. It still has enough punch. You can add uh, ice cube to it if you want. And it also just kind of waylays some of that flocculation as well.
0: Makes sense. And oddly enough, that explanation didn't even come to my mind. I was thinking <laughs> the, the taste part made sense. The move towards barrel strength made sense. I didn't even think about that. And that's usually something that I do because I hate chill filtering.
1: Um, Blom brothers uh, who are great guys. I don't know if you ever talked to Mike or Matt, but they have one of the best little pieces on their labels of all of their whiskeys. And it says never chill filtered because we're not monsters. (laughs) And we take that same approach here. Like we will do filter to make sure you're not getting any extra protein or char into your bottle, right. but that's Totally it. acceptable. That's
0: totally acceptable. <laughs> I'm okay with not getting a mouthful of barrel char fragments. That's good. <laughs> um, I may hit you up for plow bros afterwards. Cause I would definitely love to talk to them at some point. Yeah. I'd love um, to
1: share. They're great guys.
0: Um, so, and actually that's a perfect segue into the next question, which is about collaboration. So tomorrow uh in what i think will be the episode that comes out after this but um tomorrow i'm recording with the guys over at american mash and grain oh excellent and your whiskey so the whiskey del bac uh, mesquite smoke single malt was the last component of that whiskey that i had not tasted um mm. by itself i had had the watershed the mm. weigel Mah- this they say wiggle but weigel uh <laughs> Rye, and of course spirits of french legs but a frequent get, uh double guest on the podcast but I hadn't tried Whiskey Del So I'm glad we got to try that before tasting the blend because you know, I want to taste the components before mm. and after. So how did that collaboration um, come about from, from your standpoint?
1: Uh, so Devin reached out to us originally um, a couple of years ago before I ever came along. Um, he had actually spoken with Stephen and had really focused on this idea of, distilleries that are using small format barrels and are using them well um again you know for better or for worse unfortunately there's a lot of people out there that are doing short age stuff in small barrels and it's not good um and you know for, from devon the way devon has told the story was basically you know they always had this idea that they eventually wanted to create their own blends, you know, to start exploring the different ways, the different styles of whiskey around the U.S. That you know can be come together to create something that is different from the sum of their parts. And so he reached out to us around this time last year, uh, and basically had pitched the idea to Stephen and I, and said, you know, I've already talked to Alan at. French Lick and I've already had some conversations uh, with Watershed and, you know, they're, they're showing early desire. And, you know, for us, you know, Stephen has created this entire culture within the distillery of collaboration and, you know, high tide raises all ships. And which was one of the reasons I was attracted here, because I believe the same, like, Mm -hmm. I can give you my mash bill. I can give you my yeast. I can give you my pitch rates. I can give you every single piece of my production process and you will not create something that tastes like mine. And so for us, it's those opportunities to be like, yeah, let's let's support our fellow distillers. Let's create something that is greater than the sum of our parts. And so the conversation, you know, kind of started that he was like, you know, I He's like, obviously, we're known for our Dorado. We're known for our mesquite smoke. So he knew he wanted something um, to utilize that. And the caution that I always give people, and I am a smoke fiend. I love heavy smoke. I love heavy peat. Like, that is one of my personal favorites. I did just give him the caveat of mesquite is difficult to work with. Um, If you're not careful with mesquite, it can become astringent. If you're not Mm -hmm. careful with mesquite, it can nuke everything else. And so we sent them... I want to say four or five samples, um, some private barrels, some finished barrels, and what I call our commodity Dorado, which is just our standard blend. And they tasted through it and he reached out and he's like, yeah, he goes, no, that Dorado with a little bit of that classic in it, that's where we want to go. Um, and, you know, that has also led us to, you know, we collaborate routinely with Lost Lantern uh, mm-hmm. and their independent bottlings. And again, just that idea of we're all in this together. We're all working towards the same thing and working to also fight against this idea that craft distilling hasn't matured in the U S. Um, you know, Steven talked about Arizona's reputation for the wine industry and people tasting the whiskey and going, Oh my gosh, this actually tastes good. Mm -hmm. Every distillery I've ever been at either as a distiller or helping, that has always been the feedback: is when you hand someone something good that's craft a still and they go, "Oh my god, this is actually good!" Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is because there are a bunch of us who know what we're doing.
0: <laughs> I mean, that's very fair, and and honestly, the I've also um, not only tasted, but I've also spoken to all the people on this label now too, mm-hmm. uh, or the people behind it, and I do trust all of them to put out a good product, a solid product that's going to stand on its own, but also work together in a blend and showcase how far American craft distilling has come in the last 10, 15 years, because uh, it really is an amazing an amazing story to uh, to come through. Um, I'm also glad I did note, um, I didn't, but I didn't mention that you guys do work with La- Lost Lantern frequently. Um, yes, great, love Lost Lantern, had Nora and Adam on a couple episodes ago, and um, I'm excited to see what their fall and winter outturns are gonna be.
1: Uh, uh we may we may be in a couple of those so that's, that's what keep I, an i've eye heard out.
0: some i've heard some rumor about that so that is good to know um so i have a couple of other questions that i think i'm going to follow up with you uh, on uh, email about they're very like you know small technical questions about the yeast and, and the grain variety that are i know are far more interesting for guys like us than um even for the nerdiest of audience members um, and you know who i are you know who you are and i love you for it um so just looking forward as we close out um also heard rumor that you are building a new distillery
1: <laughs> uh someday um okay. yeah it is um you know as as i'm sure those who have been listening have picked up on we keep talking about space restraints um we have been very lucky you know the reception to us has been wonderful and that has seen an increase in our market share uh we did expand a little bit more in our current space to include storage for finished product um more storage for barrel space things like that uh, we will we'll trip that trigger um, if things go as they keep going within the next couple of years we will have to very seriously look at uh, look at, at building a new distillery which is a good problem to have um, but we're not quite there yet
0: <laughs> fair totally fair um, and then uh, last to ask you just now is distribution so um, I know New York and in- california aside from arizona of course are are some pretty large markets and i know i could find you uh thankfully at, at total wine near me uh, yes. i mean it's it's the biggest total wine in the country because you're only allowed to have one of them in new york uh we have yeah. some you, you think any state has weird laws we've got some weird ass laws here
1: um, everywhere i yeah. you know I've distilled in three different states i've worked in the industry and more and all of them are just bizarre and arbitrary. Exactly.
0: Exactly. If you're if you're a chain with multi a multi-state chain, you can only have one in New York. So what did they do? They made it the largest by volume total wine in the country. It's in the same parking lot as the second highest volume Costco and the third highest volume Walmart in the country. So you can imagine that area is just so much fun to drive and park in.
1: I, that um, sounds like a dream, honestly. Oh, oh, it's, wonderful. <laughs> it's wonderful.
0: It takes as long to find a parking spot as it does to drive down to Kings County um so with that um are you uh expecting in the near future to expand to any other states than um i know you were in i want to say 17 for some reason that number's popping out to me
1: yes between 17 or 18 i always feel yeah. bad because i i'm i'm able to play ignorant sometimes and be like yeah i don't know where we're available i just make the juice um <laughs> but yes yeah, so you know we're always looking at expansion, but, you know, I'll say the word again, purposeful expansion, you know, purposeful, you know, we've been, we've had people reach out to us, but we don't want to grow just to grow. Um, Obviously Arizona is our number one, um, followed by California and then New York. Uh, So those are three biggest, but, you know, we're also available in Oklahoma, Missouri, Texas and I'm gonna get in trouble because now I've started lifting <laughs> listing off and I can't remember all of them off the top of my head but
0: you're you're from uh, really uh, New York you're not gonna piss me off so you're good yeah
1: exactly I, so I'll, I'll do the default go to whiskeydelbach.com. there is <laughs> a list of all of the states that were available in there um but yeah you know we're, we're always we're always looking looking at doing it and doing it purposefully and you know the other key is also making sure that our quality stays high um, you know there's always that fear that you know, we do everything in house, you know, we are a, we're a 100% own make single malt whiskey company. Uh, as Steven alluded to earlier, we are doing a little bit of expansion and finding some ways to put a unique spin on some more traditional American whiskeys, not bourbon, <laughs> but, you know, we want to make sure that the quality stays, stays where it is. You know, we don't want to sacrifice quality for volume.
0: It's perfect sentiment to end on. So, <laughs> um, with that, uh, Mark, hang on for me Hang on with me for a second after we finish recording, but um, in the meantime, uh, where can people find Whiskey Del Bach? Uh,
1: yeah, so find us on whiskeydelbach.com. That has a full list of everywhere we are distributed. Uh, we can do direct-to-consumer shipping in Arizona and Kentucky, uh, which is something that we're very excited about. Uh, we're on social, uh, in particularly Instagram and Facebook, at Whiskey Del Bach. Um, and yeah, just, we, we are big, we're focused on education. We just launched a brand new website, so that's going to start having some more educational pieces on it soon as well. So, uh, and if you want to find us and we're not where you're at, reach out to us and maybe we're looking there right now.
0: (laughs) Never know. You want to be state 18 or 19? Now's your chance. (laughs) Now's your chance. Um, well, Mark, thank you so much. And of course, thank you to Steven for um, taking the time as well tonight, um, I'll put all the links for the website, social media in the show notes, as well as reviews of the products uh, of the Classic and of the Dorado. Um, I'll probably end up linking also the eventual review for the borrowed page, American Mash and Grain, because you guys are part of it, so you should be linked there as well. And with that, uh, please do... While you're listening, like, and subscribe to ring Podcast on your podcast app of choice. It really does make a huge difference in uh, rising up the charts, attracting sponsors, getting fantastic guests like Mark and Steven to join uh, the podcast and really you know, spend time talking nerdy stuff with me. So um, thank you so much for listening, for supporting on Patreon, and we'll see you next week.